politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow subjects of the state. But here we call you patriots at the Conservative Review. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house. New week here, Monday, August 17th. The summer has come and is almost gone. I will be here for the entire week, but we are taking an end of summer vacation for most of next week. So I know I could hear your groans. What are you going to do? But hopefully the world will not be set on fire. Hopefully that will be a quiet week. And look, typically we go away the July 4th weekend. But, uh, you know, I pushed it off, hoping that by the time the end of the summer would come along, we'd be done with this garbage and there would be more places for the kids to go. I know they like these little kitty theme parks. And of course, at least where we're going in Pennsylvania, I mean, even in rural areas, they require diapers even outdoors on your face. So there's a lot to discuss on the virus front as always. We're going to talk about the truth of hydroxychloroquine with a doctor later today. But I want to start off with something else. There is a sickening reverse Jim Crow going on in this country where basically if someone's skin color happens to be sufficiently dark, somehow if they commit a heinous crime and beat a white person off into death, they get nothing, especially if they're a juvenile. So we have a crisis of a racial justice system. We have a crisis of the BLM, Antifa, KKK running around, beating people out of their cars. And we have a crisis of juvenile crime in this country, worse than even what Reagan warned about, much worse, where there's no deterrent. We'll have to get into that more tomorrow, because I do want to get to our guest today. But I'm sure many of you have seen the picture of that man beaten unconscious out of his car at a checkpoint set up by the militias in Portland. Reminiscent of Reginald Denny during the King riots. And, you know, nothing happens. Like I said, the president needs to give a televised address on this. He needs to push the funding of these cities in the upcoming budget bill in September. He needs to stake out the election on law and order and justice and fighting against violent crime. We had last week that white five-year-old boy who was shot in cold blood by a black career criminal. Not a word from the media. Not a word. And then, I'm going to have an article out today. Remember, almost a year ago, to this day, I believe it was Labor Day weekend, Frederick County, Maryland, a little bit to the west of where I live, where people go as a sort of a respite from the crime and mayhem in Baltimore. It used to be a nice place. Someone went to the Frederick County Fair. His name was John Weed, lived in the area. We had the sheriff on our show at the time, great patriot Chuck Jenkins. And what happened was, basically, the guy was with his family, his wife, maybe nieces or nephews. And he was surrounded by a pack of 15, 20 of them, all black teens, came up to him, demanded a dollar. One of them hit him, fell to the ground, and they started doing the beating like ground and pound thing, and he was left dead. The main perpetrators were brothers, 15 and 16 years old at the time. One of them spat on his dead body. Broad daylight, Frederick County, uh, um, Frederick County uh, Fair. The sheriff happened to be there, and he arrived on the scene a few minutes later. But there's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can do in this broken, sickening, injustice system we have in America today. Truly, truly sad. Truly sad. There's tons of these stories. Well, what happened was 
it turns out that the 16-year-old, the one who did the spitting, he was just charged for the spitting now. To begin with, they only charged them as juveniles. We already spoke about that. I said at the time, we'll get a year or two in jail, and that's it, where he should get the death penalty. Well, he got zero time. He got anger management class. And by the way, he has evidently such an impressive record that a reporter for the Frederick Post had to be removed from the courtroom because they were going to discuss sensitive information. Oh, it's very sensitive. That poor boy. We can't have a reporter hearing about what he's done in his past. This is the state of juvenile justice in America. But I want to take this a step further. What would have happened if a pack of white individuals knocked out to death a black man in front of his family. I want your mind to run wild. Then we hear the news that black individual who is beating someone, a racist, literally a racial beating, in Macy's, a Macy's employee, he's going to get probation too, and his record will be sealed and expunged. We'll have to get into this at another point. There's more cases too, by the way. We'll have to round all this up. We need to get in the face of these phony Republicans and demand tougher sentencing on juveniles and demand an end to this reverse Jim Crow. But for now, as they say, it's better to be tried by 12 than carried by 6. Which is why I need you guys to go and get yourself the best American-made patriotic holster. Fulfill your natural right to self-defense and support this show. A lot of people are buying guns and ammo, but people forget you need the right holster. Believe me, when you're in this situation where a BLM mob or a knockout mob could come up to you, you need a gun that you know is secure in in your pocket in your hip, on your hip, wherever you keep it, but that it could be drawn very easily. There's a certain art to being secure, very tight, snug fit, but nice, really nice draw, and a really nice reholstering. Love that click from We The People Holsters. Starting at just $39, We The People Holsters are custom designed to fit your firearm perfectly made right here in the USA. Thousands of options to choose from, all your inside the waistband, outside the waistband options. They have adjustable cant and ride for your holster so it can fit comfortably, but also securely at all times. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR to get yours free shipping, lifetime guarantee, and make sure to put in promo code CR for $10 off. You cannot get better than that. They have these cool um, patriotic logos too that are a little bit more money, but you could use the $10 off towards that. Um, if it doesn't fit perfectly, you could get a, a total refund. Again, wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Offer code CR. Now, I could talk about this all day, about what needs to be done. Because we have already lost the messaging war on the virus. But nonetheless, I do want to get back to the virus because life and death depends on it. Now, friends, let me tell you this. A lot of you have been asking me to get into the hydroxychloroquine issue a little bit more thoroughly than I have. Probably one part of this, I haven't turned over all the stones. We've published a lot of information. We've talked about this for months. And, you know, initially... My my view was certainly everything I've seen, it works, but it's a clinical issue. Well, you know, what works to treat symptoms, what doesn't? I'm not a doctor. I don't know. I could bring people on to discuss it. But, you know, as far as, the, as, far as other stuff was concerned, that was very much public policy, shutting down our lives, making us wear face diapers all day. Um, that affects our lives. That is a matter of data analysis, of trends, and fundamentally... It was not a clinical issue. It really isn't. And I felt very confident speaking about it. But then we started to see the same pattern of obfuscation, censorship, lies that 
are endemic in the broader panic porn undergirding the shutdown mentality, the totalitarian regulations that spilled over to the clinical treatments. Because it's one thing you have, okay, doctors could debate what's the best treatment. But what happens if a government comes in and says a potentially life-saving medication treatment on an issue that they themselves are saying it's the worst challenge we've ever had? Well, that, th- that's a different story. And this has rapidly become one of the most important issues. I had a friend of mine uh, text me last night. And by the way, they are in a red state where she had a dad who, I don't know how sick he was, but, you know, it wasn't nothing. Certainly, it seemed to be pretty pretty robust. He was older, and he had trouble getting a hold of HCQ. And this is a big problem. With us today is one of the pioneers who warned about, well, he talked about the efficacy of this and warned about the government uh, declaring war on it, Dr. James Todaro, He's a co-author of the paper on effective treatment for coronavirus. We had him on in the early stages of this crisis epidemic of fear and panic and censorship. He's also part of this second opinion frontline doctors that went to D.C. and tried to give the other side of the story on all the issues because, frankly, there are few resources and platforms that can be marshaled to give the other side because of the censorship. Dr. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Yeah, so that paper you mentioned, Effective Treatment for Coronavirus, was actually the first widely disseminated paper proposing hydroxychloroquine or or chloroquine as a treatment for coronavirus. And so really, from the time we published that paper, I've seen firsthand this this really massive orchestrated attack on, on many different levels. We're talking about medical journals, government, the World Health Organization, and even kind of institutional academic scientists themselves attacking this very old medication and taking it so far as to not even say that, okay, maybe it doesn't work or maybe it only works a little bit, but to kind of push forth this, this false narrative that it's a very dangerous medication, that it will cause heart attacks or arrhythmias that can be lethal, that can kill you. And this is really that, you know, the understanding that a lot of the, the population or general public sees that they're getting from CNN or MSNBC and a lot of the kind of more left-wing media channels, um, which is really just not true. It, it's, a, it's a false narrative, and there's really no evidence that actually suggests that, that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous. And I think that the last time I was on your show was before the, really the one study that did show hydroxychloroquine is dangerous was was actually a totally fabricated study. So, so um, let's. I, I, want, I want to get into that first. Yeah. I want to get into that first because what was it? Late June, the FDA came out that they were yanking their uh, approval of it in light of quote in light of ongoing serious cardiac adverse events and other potential serious side effects. The known and potential benefits of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine no longer outweigh the known and pot- potential risks for the authorized use. So, was that coming all from this study? Give us a little bit of the context and also just isn't isn't it true that like everything we're seeing with this virus not just the this issue but what what they fail to do is give any context to anything so you know people die of all sorts of things my understanding is that 458 people died last year from tylenol um people die from all sorts of viruses And there's no sense in this dashboard era of liberally counting every last death of everything. I mean, you know, so we don't see a context. Can you just kind of give us the full overview of where they were, FDA was coming from, why it's fabricated, and why this is no, you know, why this is not any riskier than any typical drug we take? Yes. Um, So... It's interesting that you, which we've, I've discussed this before, I actually did a paper um, not too long ago, maybe I, I published it probably a couple of weeks ago, that was looking at why the FDA uh, withdrew or stated that cautionary statement on July 1st on hydroxychloroquine. And it's really a little bit confusing, actually, because the study, you know, that's kind of most in support of this idea that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous is that one that was published in the Lancet, which used the Surgisphere database. 
that was really the only sound study that come out that showed that hydroxychloroquine increases mortality and the dangers of lethal arrhythmias. And that study, as we all know today, was entirely fabricated. The data was false and it was retracted, promptly retracted by the Lancet. And no one today would argue that there's any real um, value to that study. Yet, for some reason, about a month later, the FDA kind of upgrades their statement on hydroxychloroquine and uh, indicating that it, it, it's dangerous, which if you actually dig into their, their statement, they reference a, um, you know, kind of an, an article that based on their analysis of hydroxychloroquine use, they found about 77 deaths. Uh, in patients, in COVID-19 patients who were received hydroxychloroquine. And they said, and they kind of internally, who knows how they came to this conclusion, but that it was possibly or probably associated with hydroxychloroquine. And so based on, so that was supposedly kind of their basis for issuing a statement that the potential harms of hydroxychloroquine, particularly in regards to the cardiac nature, outweigh the potential benefit. But it's very important, and many people don't understand this, is that COVID-19 ha- affects the heart in a large percentage of cases. It's somewhere between the neighborhood of 20 to 40% of severe COVID-19 cases have cardiac problems. They have myocarditis, inflammation of the heart. They well, have which, which is why 20- it seems like the top comorbidity we're seeing are those who already had a pre-existing heart condition, Right. Right. And so that's, and that also makes sense as well. So what I think you're seeing is I think that you're seeing un, hydroxychloroquine unfairly blamed for these arrhythmias and cardiac problems in late stage COVID-19, which, you know, we know that without hydroxychloroquine, those people get those heart problems as well. I mean, just the fact that hydroxychloroquine prolongs the QT interval does not necessarily mean it is the reason the drug to blame for these these adverse events. I mean, there's literally hundreds of drugs that prolong the QT interval. So, so let drugs. me let me just get this it's in layman's useful. terms, just to to, yeah. to get to the bottom of the of the fraud that they're perpetrating. Is that you know obviously our belief is that you know, you look at the virus broadly, the number of people, and you have written about this early on too, and we'll we'll try to revisit this. But it really is not that fatal for most people on the fatality rate. If you if you look at you know, really what we're seeing across the board, you know, for most people, it's 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 0.1 to 0.3. And, and that really does include the nursing homes and people with pre-existing conditions. If you're not in that group, it's even lower. It's a decimal point lower. But no one disagrees that some people do die from it and the ones that are at risk. And and that is the way they die from it. That's often the way that it, that it, it, it involves some sort of cardiac syndrome. And so it's not like, oh, they're saying hydroxychloroquine makes people's eyes like, you know, spontaneously combust or they start oozing blood or something because um, that would be very easily identifiable. The side effect that they're alleging you're saying is the very hallmark of someone who has acute, severe um, COVID-19 that will ultimately die from it and will ultimately that's the person we're going to try hydroxion. We're going to try remdesivir, whatever. So, you know, you could blame remdesivir for heart failure too, right? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Of course, they're not going to send that message out there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's why this, there's a number of studies that specifically look at prospective and retrospective. This is, you know, studies that are moving forward and, and looking back at data, either one, that have not shown any uh, significant difference in terms of cardiac um, mortality, the death due to cardiac reasons, between patients who took hydroxychloroquine versus not. That was almost why I think they had to, you know, they came up with a fake study to show it because they couldn't get real data to show it. And they still really haven't today. It's kind of more anecdotal. And I think it's, again, like you just summarized so well, this compounding, this kind of mix-up between the natural disease course. And if you even want to take it one step further, the FDA's um, statement cautioning against use of hydroxychloroquine is even, in my opinion, uh, more misguided because we've been saying to use hydroxychloroquine very early in the course of disease for many months. This has been clearly stated. And so there is a theoretical argument where you could say, well, look, in end-stage COVID-19, you have cardiac problems already, which are probably from COVID-19, and then you're going to add a pro QT, uh, like a, a drug that may uh, cause arrhythmias or may maybe set that as a tiny bit worse. And so 
in theory, again, the evidence doesn't really show this, but in theory, maybe hydroxychloroquine does have a small negative effect in very late stage COVID-19. In theory, again, the evidence doesn't really show that. But what we've advocated is early use of it. This is well before you have any cardiac problems. So this is during the really like the kind of disinfectious stage of the disease, not where you have a, a cytokine storm or a major systemic inflammatory state. And so there's no one in their right mind that would argue that a five to 10 day course of hydroxychloroquine in a fairly healthy individual become, before they become severely ill is going to be dangerous. And I do not know of a single study out there that really even alludes to that. So what we're finding is something very similar to to every other aspect of this virus. And that's how you guys know this is a fraud, because it's the same thing with the masks. We we used that last week. The Kansas Department of Health put out a fabricated chart to show masks help. We saw it with child to, um, to adult transmission. Uh, about a dozen countries studied this and they could not find child to adult transmission, at least not in any meaningful way. And they they fab in Germany. Someone fabricated a study to uh, show that that no no it, it causes more transmission and and it's you know th- this keeps happening every time. But what we see is that what the damage is already done, and you know we could put out stuff showing our strategy and it never gets debunked, but it doesn't go anywhere. They could put out stuff that does get debunked. But the the policy damage is still done. So the FDA has not pulled this back. My question to you is twofold. Number one, so you have a number of states that are now downright banning this. A, how precedented is it for a state government to kind of get involved in that? What's the precedent for that? B, what do people do if they're in a position where they feel the onset and they want to get a hold of HCQ? How do they get a hold of it? And maybe C, I'll add a third one there. And I know you can't disclose private conversations, but I know you guys were involved when you went to Washington speaking with administration officials about this. Now, the last time I checked, the FDA is not a fourth branch of government. Um, they they uh, operate at the discretion of the chief operating officer, chief executive officer of the executive branch. And that's the president. So are you going to are we seeing any progress on this issue? Yeah, so to answer your first question, this kind of state interference in the prescription of hydroxychloroquine is unprecedented. So never before, to my knowledge, and I've spoken with different representatives who are very much involved in healthcare, has a FDA-approved medication been barred at a state level or by pharmacy boards or where physicians prescribing it were threatened to have to appear before medical boards to justify their use of it. I've never heard that. So, if it, so traditionally, if a, if a medication is FDA approved, then the FDA has approved it safe, and then you can use it for on-label, which is uh, meaning they use it for what the FDA says it should be used for, or you can use it for off-label prescriptions. And off-label prescriptions are very common in medicine. Most physicians do them quite frequently, and that's kind of what's the difference between a good physician and maybe a less knowledgeable physician is some physicians have more experience with the drug. And so even if there's not a tremendous amount of evidence for it, there's kind of early evidence, there's retrospective, there's different forms of this evidence. And so they'll have a conversation with the patient and prescribe it. And you're not going to have a pharmacy tell this doctor, say, no, you're not allowed to do that. I'm reporting you to the board. That's basically what we're seeing in many states, um, which is I'm in Michigan and it's similar. Like physicians are afraid to prescribe this medication to patients because of potentially getting their licenses suspended or getting penalized. Um, and so that's kind of the involvement of government interference in the hydroxychloroquine um, with the state. Now, to answer one of your latter questions, how do people get this? There are ways around it. The only one of those states that is not allowing physicians to prescribe it, they're usually blocking it at the pharmacy level. And so what you can do is you can do a telemedicine consult. Um, I haven't followed up with them in a while, but I think it's speakwithanmd.com, where you can do a telemedicine consult, and if they think you qualify for the prescription, they'll send you hydroxychloroquine, I believe azithromycin and zinc, and a pharmacy will, I think, overnight that to you um, in a day or two, and then you'll be able to start it and then continue the tele- telemedicine consult. Again, I have not personally used the service, but sure. um, I've heard good things about it. Wh- wh- which website is this again? 
speakwithanmd.com. Speakwithanmd.com. Okay. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are concerned about that. And, and, and again, I mean, this is how you nip it in the bud. You get it early and it's a win-win. Uh, everyone claims they're they're scared of this virus. Well, this is a way, especially for people that could potentially get it um, in, in an acute way, this is a way of warding it off. Um, any sense of progress, at, at least at a federal level? Right. So, to, so one of your follow-up questions. So we did meet with uh, Vice President Mike Pence a couple of weeks ago and his chief of staff, and we had this discussion you know, about hydroxychloroquine. And one of the things that we said is, is kind of addressing the earlier question where at the state level, so many, um, you know, it, the medication is essentially taboo and physicians don't prescribe it. And that at the bare minimum, the FDA needs to make an announcement saying, look, this, you know, we're not advocating restricting the use of this medication. This is that it's an FDA approved medication. It should be between a patient and doctor, um, you know, relationship. They were not trying to interfere with that, nor do we ever intend to. And so shortly after a meeting with the vice president, Steve Hahn, commissioner of the FDA, made an announcement um, where he said, look, if physicians want to prescribe this, that's between a physician and a patient, and it shouldn't be blocked. You, know, you should not be interfering with that. Um, unfortunately, I don't really see many effects from that um, since it was, it was issued. I think it was largely ignored by by the governors who already um, have their, their kind of foot in the ground on this issue. Um, so then the next thing that was done, which Henry Ford actually did about a month and a half ago, is they filed for an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine in um, early outpatient treatment. That was just rejected, I think, today or yesterday. Um, and so there's kind of different ways we're trying to push forward to open up. Like, that's all we're really advocating for at the end of the day, is just allowing medicine to get back to where it was, where physicians can prescribe an FDA-approved drug if they want to. So really, we're kind of playing catch-up on that front, which is really silly. Um, but so there's different ways we're trying to go about this. So that's kind of where, where, where we are right now. What What is the primary motivation? So at first, I thought it was, okay, well, obviously, you have a 60-year-old drug that's that's dirt cheap. All the pharmaceuticals that are looking to earn a, you know, a fortune off of um, drugs that are very expensive, and they know the government's just going to shell out an unlimited amount of money to the hospitals to pay for it. So obviously, they're behind it. So number one, have you seen evidence of them being behind the attack? But number two, I would say from my end, this has almost become like abortion and gay marriage and guns, meaning it's it's almost seems like it's more than just, oh, there, there's money involved. It's almost like an ideological thing. And it almost makes me wonder that they don't want a cheap, effective cure just politically to keep the panic porn and just the entire mystique around this virus going? I think it's a combination of the two, honestly. I, I, um, so regarding the last point politically, yes, you know, we have a you know, probably one of the most controversial elections in history coming up in a few months and the, the state of the economy and, and the state of this pandemic is probably going to, uh, affect the outcome of that election dramatically. And so there's definitely a political element to it. And then regarding hydroxychloroquine specifically, you know, obviously when the president mentioned it as a potential candidate for treatment, he kind of gave the appearance of championing the drug. And so this is almost a little bit of like right versus wrong on, you know, the outcome of whether it's truly effective or not. Um, so definitely a political component. There is a huge big pharma component on the other end though. I mean, um, and, you know, point, pointing fingers at specifically which uh, big pharma or uh, vaccine program is behind this, it's, it could be a little bit of all of them, or there could be some main drivers. It's tough to say. I, I will tell you that uh, Gilead, and they're the maker of Remdesivir, you know, when the president first announced hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for COVID-19, it really shocked, I think, uh, the country. Gilead stock fell fell dramatically, fell billions of dollars within hours and about $21 billion in you know, the following early next week. So we're talking about a huge amount of money um, that's shifting hands and uh, valuation of companies based on the performance of either their medication, which is invested here, or a, competitive, a competing uh, you know, off-patent off medication like hydroxychloroquine. And then, of course, you have even a bigger player in the room now, which is the vaccine, right? 
you know, there's suspicion that this vaccine is going to be mandated and it depends on how hard they're going to push, whether it's just to go to school or to go to work, to work in the hospital, you have to have the vaccine, or maybe you don't. Um, and, you know, if you're talking about vaccinating, even in the U.S. alone, 100 million people, you start, you know, there's, there's a lot of money at stake here. And especially once you expand into the kind of the global space and, um, and there's companies and, and foundations that have invested billions of dollars already into developing this vaccine. And so obviously if hydroxychloroquine works in the early stage and is effective even at like decreasing your chance of getting a severe COVID by 30 or 40 or 50 percent, I mean, that's kind of all they're expecting for a vaccine is something in the neighborhood of 50 percent. So right then, it kind of diminishes the real value of the vaccine. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but the realistic fact of the matter is that these corporations are driven by driven by money. They have, they're reporting to shareholders. Their goal is to make the corporation money. Um, and, and then when it comes to medical journals, which are kind of the gatekeepers for peer reviewing these articles, this evidence, these things work, you know, they receive most of their funding from uh, most of their publishing revenue from sponsorships and advertisements with big pharma. So the gatekeepers are in big pharma's pocket. And then, you know, big pharma, and so it's just like this whole cycle where it's a whole system where, it's now independent researchers that have to really dig into these studies and try to determine what's true and what's false because you can't really kind of trust that whole closed system any longer. You know, that, that, that's, that's really funny with not being able to trust the system. And it, it, it's scary. It's scary that they would do horrible things to us. They would block life-saving treatments. They would, they would upend science all for politics. I just, it, it is truly, truly shocking, but we are seeing that. We are seeing that every day through every facet of this issue. And one of the things that stuck out with me is I always tell people, look at the literature on an issue before it became political. If, if you're not, you don't feel comfortable opining about science, medicine, or whatever it is. It could be the military. It could be a fiscal issue. It could be anything. Look at the literature before that issue um, reached an inflection point politically. And one of the things that really got me, aside from just the fact that there was this was a grassroots movement of doctors and in like a hundred different countries, clearly there was no dog in the fight like there is on the on the other side. There's no no money to be made, so it made a lot of sense to me. But what really struck me was when I saw that the NIH, while Fauci was director, published a study showing that this drug already has been proven to help for SARS-1. And the reason why that was a jolt to me is because I've studied this virus, as you know, very carefully, and I've seen numerous examples of the cross-relationship between the two. For example, it seems like with SARS-1, kids didn't get seriously sick, kids didn't transmit. Very similar thing. We're seeing the, and I want to get to this in a minute, with the T-cell cross-reactivity between the different coronaviruses. So you have different viruses, but they're in the family. They react, they, they, they do act similarly in many respects. So I was like, wow, that seems to really make sense that if it would work with one, it would work with the other. Could you tell us a little bit more about this history? Yeah, so absolutely right. Look at before it became politicized to see what the evidence was. The, the thing I'll, I'll kind of highlight that I think is very interesting is, so right, the 2005 study that showed that chloroquine and maybe hydroxychloroquine um, could be a potential inhibitor of coronavirus. At least that's what they were seeing, uh, SARS-CoV-1, and that's what they were seeing in, in test tubes and dishes. Now, fast forward 15 years, you again, like you said, have a very similar coronavirus yet there's no mention of this drug as a potential therapeutic candidate. You have the uh, assistant deputy general, I think, of the World Health Organization, who's on record in late February of 2020, saying that there's only one drug that seems to show promise for coronavirus, and that's remdesivir. Meanwhile, just three weeks earlier, another in vitro study was published, published in a uh, Nature publication. They showed that both chloroquine and remdesivir were potent inhibitors of SARS-CoV-2. Yet the World Health Organization, the NIH, completely ignored chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine as a, a therapeutic for COVID-19. It wasn't until our Google document, okay, 
this should not, this, you know, this really should, it shouldn't have been us that brought the world's attention to hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. This should have been something that the World Health Organization had already been started studies on, that the NIH was already working on. Like, these are foundations that have billions of dollars to us. I have gotten no money whatsoever for researching hydroxychloroquine or COVID-19. And I should not be the one coming up with, uh, along with my colleague, these potential therapeutic candidates. And as you saw, then it became like, okay, well, yeah, I guess we should be studying this. So it almost felt like they were pressured into studying this off-patent medication. They were desperately looking for a patented therapeutic. Um, and it makes sense yeah. to me when you juxtapose, you know, 15 years later, because look, I remember SARS, it was in the news. It, it was one of the more discussed outbreaks than we've had over the last 50 years. But I mean, if you had to measure it against this, it was like, I mean, there was never a sense of the world shutting down outside of, you know, health uh, settings, life never changed. And, you know, you would have never had a dynamic that would have created an opening for big pharma to earn any money off of it. So it makes sense that the reports on the efficacy of chloroquine would go unanswered. You know, no one had felt a need to beat it down. Whereas now, boy, you, you gotta, um, you gotta beat that down because a, you need the panic porn, you need the control that it, uh, assumes. And then obviously the money made off of either the vaccines or their treatments and things like that. Um, I know you got to go, but I, I want to just get one uh, other thing out of you before you leave. You've been tweeting about, um, T-cells, and we've talked about that a lot, and inherent cross-immunity in the population, what is the herd immunity threshold? And so, folks, first of all, you could go follow him at James Todaro, MD, on Twitter. Some more literature seems to have come out, or at least has been peer-reviewed over the weekend, actually in this Lancet uh, publication we, we talked about. Could you give a little overview of how you see the T-cell immunity playing into the state of affairs that we find ourselves in today? You you look today and it's like, you know, we had a March-April hit that was more severe, but it was also pretty much limited to the Northeast. It was everywhere, but it only saturated itself there. Then now it's reached saturation I, I'm not going to say everywhere in the country, but certainly the other big states, California, Texas, um, uh, Florida. But, but, you know, really a lot of southern states in Arizona have gotten more of a hit now. And then it doesn't go forever. It doesn't go to 80 percent. It seems to stop right around 15, 20 percent where states like Arizona are believed to be. There were no reported deaths today from Arizona. Very few cases. It, it could be a light reporting day. Monday often is, but you still see it's very much down. You look across the nation as of August 13th, according to uh, CDC's coronavirus like illness surveillance um just 1.8% of all uh, emergency department visits were due to or people with COVID-like symptoms. Um, it keeps going down. You look at a lot of regions and it's down to in some region, regions, uh, you know, less than 2%, less than 1%, even in some regions. Where do you see the virus headed and what role do these T-cells play? Yeah, so the... First, I'll say that the immune system is actually an incredibly complex system. And so it's not completely understood. Okay. And this goes for, for T cells, for B cells, which produce antibodies. And so what you have to do is kind of look at what the science has shown us. And I think compare that to clinical manifestations of the disease, as well as the kind of epidemiological studies on it. And in the context of that, you know, it's, you know, it lends a, a pretty decent support to this idea that a large percent of the population is at least partially immune to coronavirus. And now this is, you know, is it full immunity? Is it a you know, partial immunity where you are asymptomatic but do have some of the, the viral particles that are alive maybe in your, in your nose nasopharynx? Um, you know, and so studies have come out that it sounds like you guys have already discussed where like between 30 and maybe 60, 70% of people have these cross-reactive T-cells that they recognize coronavirus, SARS-coronavirus 2, and it's likely from one of the four other uh, coronaviruses that make up the common cold. 
scan. Um, and so there's a, kind of the science of lab evidence is there that you have some degree of, of immunity where your T cells do recognize this. So how does that look in the epidemiological studies, which, you know, that's, you know, it's, it could potentially explain why we're not seeing these, these states or countries just continue to explode up in, you know, first wave and then second wave where they're reaching this, you know, kind of this, you know, previously expected 60 to 70 percent uh, infected with coronavirus. We're not seeing that. And so I think, and I'm sure you've talked about it, but Sweden is a great example because then, because everyone will sit there and say, well, I mean, that's why New York uh, didn't hit 60, 70 percent is because there were lockdowns, there were masks. Well, I think the mask came well after the peak, first of all. And then the lockdown. And then, and then the areas well, where it did hit, like in Hawaii, they had it in place for months and it hits when it hits. And now it is hitting. Right. Um, and, it, and it goes there. Yeah. So that, that can't be the active ingredient. Right. right. It might be like with lockdowns, you know, uh, the, you know, there's arguments that it actually hurts people or benefits. It might decrease the threshold for hurting you a little bit. But I think realistically, it's coming to an area near you and it's going to kind of reach it as soon as like it's kind of you know coming together around this about 20 percent in major cities now there's plus or minus five ten percent probably depending on the area but and how dense the population is there but it seems like kind of state after state large city after large city we are seeing it hit about 20 percent and then it seems to kind of burn itself out i think what it's doing is the people that don't have the t-cell immunity uh, you have none or you know, a very weak response, are probably the ones that are most susceptible to the virus. So they're the ones getting infected. They're the ones having the most severe outcomes. And now what you're left with is people who are at least partially immune. So they're, even if they catch the virus, they're probably not going to be very symptomatic. They're not going to be coughing and projecting the particles everywhere. So you're going to have decreased number of cases. And then again, they're going to have some immunity to and recognize this virus already. So they're, they're you know, much fewer going to die. And that's kind of what we're seeing. We are seeing cases still, even though in many areas very low. Sweden has been kind of continually downtrending in cases. And then deaths are even lower. They're almost non-existent now in these areas. Um, and so I think in the setting of the, this context, it makes sense that this T-cell immunity, because again, these people don't have antibodies for this virus. So they see T-cell cross-reactivity to SARS-CoV-2, but they're not seeing antibodies. Um, and so maybe the T-cell be able to even fight off the virus before the body mounts a strong antibody response to it. So it's doesn't this also well have, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, what? No, go ahead. I was just saying, doesn't this also have another serious ramification, not just in terms of the here and the now, that it means that it's going to burn itself out and we're not going to have to get up to 80. And again, the irony is they're saying, well, Daniel, herd immunity is not a good strategy. strategy. And we're like, well, dude, it's not a strategy. It's a reality. You're going to hit it, um, and we are hitting it, irrespective of what you do. So, in other words, all these states in America, you know, whether it's Arizona, whether it's California, whether it's New York, they're getting to where Sweden is. The only difference is that Sweden didn't destroy their society, have all the people die from suicide, drug overdoses, and miscare like we're having here. Um, but but you're you're going to get what you get. Um, based on the seasonality, based on your demographics, the health status of people, it's going to do what it does. Um, and the rest is up to you in terms of creating collateral damage. So that's certainly the thing. But then there's the other half, which is the future. So I noticed, I, I, I think the other side senses this is happening. Whether they want to admit it or not, they know that it burns itself out. They know that we have never seen a second wave. And what I mean by that is you've never seen an individual area that reached saturation. I'm not saying 80%. We're saying 15 20%. And then it came back. So in other words, you do find... See, it's irresponsible. The media reports reports on countries that get it back, but countries are big. You, you, it's not it's it's heterogeneous, right? So you have Madrid got saturated, but other areas different d- didn't. Uh, Southern Italy barely got anything. Now I don't see it reemerging yet, but it very well could. They barely got anything there. Um, in America too, in March and April, a good chunk of the country really didn't get much. So you know it came and it came later. Um, we have not seen that happen. So th- now they have to prepare the next tranche of this. All right, Daniel, you're right. They did get it. But guess what? The antibodies 
you know, get lost after a couple of months and we're screwed because this virus is different than any other virus and you're going to get it again and again and die again and get it seriously again. What does this T-cell immunity and the studies on it demonstrate or portend with regard to future reinfection? Yeah, so it does seem like there's more and more evidence coming out that the antibodies do seem to, to wane after you know a few months or maybe less than a year. Um, but that's why, and like this, the study that just published a few days ago, I think it was a Swedish study actually, but they said that they show that people have T-cell specific uh, COVID-2 and coronavirus 2 antibodies, they're not antibodies, but T-cells, but don't have the antibodies. And so I think that those memory T-cells, those T-cells that remember this virus, and particularly for the people who are already infected, I think there's a really good chance that they are either not going to see reinfection or it's going to be so subclinical that they're probably not even going to experience symptoms. And again, that would not be due to antibodies, which are now already gone after a few months, but due to this T-cell kind of response or um, yeah, T-cell response. Um, Meaning the way to combat so, the panic porn you're saying is that if we see, we already have like six, seven studies on this that are very, very carefully done that demonstrate 17 years later, they saw cross-reactivity, um, unique T-cell memory to SARS-CoV-2, even from convalescent patients from SARS-CoV-1 SARS-1 or or the other coronavirus colds like HCoV-C43, which clearly is is why or likely why kids and young adults um, are better off because they've had it more recently. And then, uh, you know, they didn't they're not immunocompromised. So obviously, someone who is immunocompromised, they could have gotten the colds. But, you know, the T cells, the, the B cells, they don't they don't work as well. Um, but. But so so that's that's what we're seeing. So isn't it true that certainly if you downright got SARS-CoV-2 itself, there's no reason to believe you'd be worse off than those SARS-1 patients where it seemed like in their blood it, it reacted to the um, virus of, of SARS-2? Absolutely. I would say it's, it's highly unlikely. You almost certainly won't experience a, a worse uh, infection the second time around. And I would say, and I don't think there's really been a clear... I don't know if there's been many cases or, or any where, at least in that Swedish study that came out a week ago, none of those patients ever got reinfected with the virus. I think that maybe you have some patients who um, were still in the recovery phase and then kind of came down with another inflammatory response from it. But I don't know of any cases where someone clearly had the infection, recovered, and then got hit again who wasn't uh, immunocompromised. Immunocompromised people obviously have a different situation. But. Sure, sure. But but I'm saying, isn't that again, true of again, other viruses? Years later, what's that? Isn't that true of other viruses too? I mean, if you're immunocompromised, that you're not necessarily immune from other things that you got already? Uh, right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, the four you know, coronaviruses kind of affect people every, you know, every year. So my, going forward, you know, my hunch is that this will potentially be another coronavirus within the maybe seasonal pool, and you'll have a pretty significant herd immunity in the population. And anyone that was really highly susceptible to it is, is mostly, um, you know, they're mostly protected now, um, not like that first wave. You're going to have the elderly who have a weak immune system, weak T cell response, that will be affected by this, um, just like they are by the influenza virus. And so, in theory, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's very possible that it's going to be the, there's five coronaviruses that make up the common cold now. And it'll probably be not terribly different than those other four. Exactly. And look, when you look probably at it. certainly H- not worse than the flu, I would say. Not yeah. worse. And, and when you look at HCoV-OC43, which is believed to be the most common of the existing four, look, we already have the research from British Columbia during the SARS era in 2003, where the, the PCR test, you know, picked up uh, SARS, but it turned out it was it was the coronavirus cold. And there were people in nursing homes who died from it. I mean, as they do probably from some rhinoviruses as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it all kind of falls in the umbrella of pneumonia. Um, but yeah, it probably started as a common cold or started as a flu. They started as another coronavirus. But this and is what you guys need to prepare for. I mean, I think you guys in the frontline doctors that are fighting this, because my concern is they are going to find people in, in the sense that these PCR tests pick up everything, often false positives. But even if they're not false positives, 
I, I think what we all agree, we're not exactly sure, but I think we agree it's very likely that it's not that if you swap someone, they might not have remnants of the the RNA of the virus, but it's just they're they're not going to get seriously ill from it. But my concern is that's going to be lost on people and they say, look, uh, this guy had it and he tested positive again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that without death, uh, making it a big second wave. I think it's, I mean, obviously people that just believe that, you know, whatever they're told, but it'll, it'll you know, it makes it a pretty difficult case <laughs> when you're looking at, at the death counts in these, in these areas. You look at the death in Spain, how, how it's almost non-existent now compared to that first wave, even though the cases are going up. The cases I think in Spain are about half or even more than half of what, it, or around half of what it was at the peak in, in March. And yet the deaths are, it's like, we're talking like, 10 deaths a day or 15 deaths a day or something there compared to you know a thousand or something and so it's you know i think as, as long as we can focus on that we can continue to watch sweden without this this you know new wave of death i think it's gonna be a really hard argument to a keep everyone locked down kind of off and on based on just this this you know case demic based on the number of cases and then b it'll be really hard to push vaccines and you know large populations and you look at other countries and say, well, they didn't, they don't have a vaccine and they're fine. They're back to normal. Like why, why do we need this? Why do we need this rushed vaccine? And it's and certainly because I don't think there's any good safety on a vaccine or, or good even evidence of efficacy within the next year. And so it'd be a little surprising to me if, if the U S will, was still all caught up in this, whereas Sweden had forgotten about the, the you know, COVID-19 for the last year and a half. I hope you're right, but we got to get the truth out. That's the only way to push back against it. That is the best treatment to the fear pandemic, the pandemic of panic and groupthink. Thanks so much, Dr. Tudero, for joining us again today. Uh, very enlightening discussion as always. Folks, we are way out of time. Uh, send me your comments, questions, and concerns uh, for Dr. Tadara. If you have questions for him, I could address that uh, to, on tomorrow's show at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.